What is up, everyone, and welcome back to Jules Just Vibes. I'm your host, Jules, and as always, we're here to just vibe. I want to formally welcome you all to March Magic Madness. For the month of March, I wanted to celebrate my love for the IP and the world that created the Hogwarts Legacy game. Today, and for the next three weeks, we're deep diving all eight Harry Potter movies and all three Fantastic Beast movies to prepare you for the main event, my Hogwarts Legacy review. I know waiting four weeks is a lot, but I promise it's going to be well worth it as I'm doing a four-character playthrough to give you all the juicy details from every end of the spectrum. Now before we dive into this really long episode, let me give you a quick overview of my Potter stats, sort of like a passport of Harry Potter. I've been an avid lover of Harry Potter ever since I was a kid, as young as, I believe, nine years old. As a kid, I always loved reading, like I talked about in my Matilda the Musical review, and being an only child, I found friends in Harry, Ron, and Hermione. I always love to bring up the fact, though, that my mom actually had to read the first Harry Potter book first for me to even finish it or enjoy it. I started Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and thought, no, not for me. Being that young, I didn't appreciate the details as much as I do now that I'm older, so the setup the book did just kind of felt boring to me. So I gave Harry Potter a second chance, and now it's a major part of my life and interests. Now, I am a proud Gryffindor, but it is not because of any other reason than that is where I was put. I don't have a hero complex. I don't want to be associated with the original trio. That's just where I got put. I am as much of a support character as Neville Longbottom, and so I think Gryffindor is just fine, but if we're spilling secrets here, I actually always wanted to be in Ravenclaw. To be witty and wise, ugh. It's probably because of some parent trauma that we really won't get into, but anyway, if you ever wanted to see what your house is and you wanted to find that out, you can go to pottermore.com, which I guess is now wizardingworld.com, and you can get sorted. And now that I've mentioned Pottermore, let's just go ahead and full dive deep into the history of Harry Potter. The Harry Potter IP is a world that started with series of novels created by the author J.K. Rowling, which has sold over 600 million copies. She released the first book in the series in 1997 called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, just two years after she completed the manuscript, which was sold in the UK first. The first run of the books by the publisher only released 500 copies, They actually sent 200 to bookstores and the last 300 went to libraries. Later that year, Scholastic actually bought the rights to publish the book and after changing it from Philosophers to Sorcerers in 1998, Harry Potter came to the US. Since her first book release, she went on to release three more a year apart and these are the movies that we are going to be re-watching and reviewing today. So let's get into it. I re-watched Harry Potter movies 1 through 4 so you don't have to. And as always with these deep dives, there's spoilers, so have your wits about you because something wicked this way comes. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone movie was released in 2001, just four years after its novel Counterpart. And a little fun fact, books one through four were actually already released before this movie came out, so you could guess for sure that this was already going to be a movie series. Although, I think, honestly, the thought of series in the early 2000s was pretty negative. The Sorcerer's Stone hit a runtime of a little under 2 hours and 30 minutes, and it gave a lot of info to the audience. 
Sorcerer's Stone was directed by Christopher Columbus, and I'm going to make a point to say who directed these movies because I think it really matters who touched them, especially when it comes to the other movies where there's death and change of scenery. I also find it interesting that this movie didn't take long to film or release, and actually another fact I found out about along the way was that Steven Spielberg was actually negotiating to direct this movie, but it would have actually been an animated adaptation. Considering the characters and how iconic they are, I'm actually not sure if I would have loved seeing it animated. But what are your thoughts? Sorcerer's Stone comes in at second under the Deathly Hallows Part 2, understandably, in overall box office sales. Looking through that list that I got some really in good information, and I'll let you know where each movie stands within their overall sales and their sales for their year. With these movies being so popular in their fandom, we almost forget sometimes that there's regular people out there that aren't crazy and don't actually want to see the movie. Now, going through these movies, I'm not really going to go through a lot of the plot or story into full detail because I think we would just kind of be here forever, but I would like to go through my general thoughts of the movie rewatching at this stage in life. Now, what should we rate these movies on? I'm really biased, but I did rewatch with some scrutiny, so you can kind of bear with me, but you can also take what I say with a grain of salt. So with the ratings, I definitely want to rate these movies on the acting and the characters. I want to rate the overall story, and I want to do a book-to-movie comparison. These scales are going to be 1 to 10, and to ensure you're aware of my extensive knowledge on the matter, I have watched and rewatched these movies dozens of times. I've also listened and read the books just as much. Some things might still elude me or surprise me to remember again, but the gist is it's all up here in my brain, so there's no worries on any lack of knowledge. So let's dive in, Sorcerer's Stone. I also wanted to mention that you're able to watch all the Harry Potter movies on Peacock, and they're the longer versions with deleted scenes. So I definitely urge you, if you're wanting to rewatch the films, to go and get a Peacock subscription and do that. Now, the main premise of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is that Harry is an orphan who's lost his family due to an evil wizard. He goes and lives with his non-magic or muggle family and finds out he is a wizard and has been invited to go to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. His school year is anything less than chill when a troll, bully kids, a three-headed dog, and the evil wizard Voldemort, more or less, comes to interrupt his time of learning. Luckily, it's not all bad as he gets to learn Quidditch, the wizard sport flown on brooms, and hones his magic all the while making friends and managing his life in the wizarding world as the boy who lived. The first Harry Potter movie is great, but it's definitely not without its flaws. Being as this is the first movie adaptation of the series, I think it came under a microscope by many, and which led to a lot of first impressions being negative. I actually took the time to look through the reviews from the critic side of Rotten Tomatoes to see what they were saying about the movie when it was first released. And while the majority was positive, there were at least 20% that were also negative. A lot more rotten than in the more recent year reviews. The substance of the film, for the length that it was, caused a bit of intrigue and discussion coming in at one of the first movies other than Star Wars and Titanic to be two hours plus. Pair that with the fact that it's the first in a series of four, almost five books of a well-known IP, and every detail is bound to be picked apart. Personally, from a 2001 point of view, when this movie was released, I enjoyed every minute of it, and that hasn't changed from my 2023 rewatching. 
Like the book, it was slow to start off, but the way the movie went through everything and almost held your hand, I don't actually see as a flaw. I think when you're introducing a world that's already established to people who haven't read the books, you almost need that slow buildup. We had to spend time with the Dursleys to see how bad they treated Harry. We have to take the time to eat at the Leaky Cauldron to learn about Harry's past. Each moment you felt that wasn't crucial to the plot, Charms, Christmas Time, Hagrid and the Dragon Egg, all led to the main plot of the story. The movie took its time to really let each feature in the wizarding world shine, whether it was spells, creatures, or Quidditch. That's what makes this movie great. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone brings you into the magical world with ease and it doesn't overwhelm you. Even when Harry says things like, What was that thing you saved me from? But the actors are young and kind of just starting out, so there's bound to be a little bit of cringe dialogue in there, like that line. Interestingly enough, as iconic as the trio is, I think the star of this movie is actually Ron Weasley, who was played by Rupert Grint. His acting was top tier compared to the others. While Harry delivered his lines with exaggeration, Hermione's facial expressions took away from the dialogue that she was delivering. Ron was the only one with a solid parallel between the dialogue he was giving and his face. I also want to make something known. If you have read the books, you are aware that Ron, Hermione, and Harry are not always a trio. Often someone else would tag along. Neville Longbottom was a regular in the trio's adventures, but he's kind of treated like a C character. I understand, though. In the grand scheme of the movie, it's much easier to have a camera focus on three people in a frame than four. While it is a hit that I will be taking into account, I think the screen time that Neville was given was good. With all that knowledge, let's talk about the plot of the story. One thing about magic that I love, and probably why JKR decided to do fantasy first, is there's almost no rules. The idea that the evil wizard who killed Harry's parents was defeated by Harry, who was a baby, and has to attach his life force to a Hogwarts professor to work out different plans to try and live forever, only to be defeated by Harry's touch due to his mom dying for him, is just wild. In plain text, it's ludicrous, and in many different directions, but the movie plays it out so well with good detail that many book-to-movie adaptations lack. Okay, let's review this movie. In acting and characters, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Ron bumped this number up because some of the acting was just not great, but the number is also high because the actors they cast to play each character was a really good fit. Also, I want to point out, and I kind of urge you to rewatch this moment and let me know if you see it, that Rupert Grint, who played Ron, actually gets hurt for real during the chess match scene when he falls off the horse. There's a stone that hits his face and it legitimately looks like it decked him and I need validation that it was real. So please rewatch and let me know because I scream every time I see it because it legitimately looks like he gets a mark on his face from that stone. And I put a little edit here. After writing the script, I wanted to dock off a point for the fact that Harry does know magic in his first year of Hogwarts. I watched a video that pointed that out, and after thinking about it, it's entirely true. I encourage you to rewatch it and wait for Harry to pull out a wand to do magic after he gets his wand. I guarantee there will not be a moment. So next in the ratings is for overall story, and honestly, I'm just going to go ahead and say it 10 out of 10. And I might be biased about this, but this story was actually really well done and it helped make the introduction into this new wizarding world really easy to understand. And last, for book-to-movie adaptation, and for this one, it's in the early movies like this and the second one, they stay pretty true to form. So I rated it an 8 to 10. 
There are minor book discrepancies, but it's nothing that really affects the plot or the story. Overall, with those ratings in mind, Sorcerer's Stone gets an 8 out of 10 from me. Now let's move on to movie number two, Chamber of Secrets. The Chamber of Secrets was directed by Christopher Columbus, like the first movie, and it released in 2002, just one year after the premiere of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Its runtime hits two hours and 46 minutes. And like the first movie, The Chamber of Secrets was coveted by fans, grossing $879 million in the box office and becoming the second highest grossing film of 2002, behind, some would say, its rival, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And I want to I wanna just like really quickly jump in here. It, was I the only one who thought that you could only like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Or did I make up that rivalry in my head? Because I think... In my head, as a kid, I created the rivalry, and so like, I, but I thought it came from somewhere. So like, if you were aware that there was a rivalry between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, let me know because I I need to be validated. And a lot of this podcast is me asking for validation via my favorite topics. So just I just need to know. It was really interesting to see that Lord of the Rings beat out Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets because Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone actually beat out the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm just going to say it's actually really impressive to look into how long it actually took to make these films because I was really interested. Um, and in regards to Harry Potter, you would kind of expect that when they released the Sorcerer's Stone that they were already filming the Chamber of Secrets. And while they were, the Chamber of Secrets only took a year to film and like much of the other movies until later on when they took more time, which I think you can kind of tell on production, like a year isn't that long. But while it did release a year after, and maybe it was the sequel sense or maybe it was something else, but surprisingly, box office sales for The Chamber of Secrets, it's second to last in the list of all the eight movies. Now I'm going to rate this movie like I did on the first one, with the acting and the characters, the overall story, and a book-to-movie comparison. Alright, let's try to wade through the Chamber of Secrets. The main premise of the Chamber of Secrets is Harry being visited by a house elf named Dobby, who uses every attempt shy of killing him to avoid Hogwarts or leave there. There's a voice only Harry can hear, and students, ghosts, and cats are being petrified. A diary shows the events of a trusted friend being punished for false crimes, and then there's a chamber with a giant snake controlled by a young Voldemort in hopes to be reborn, but at a grave cost. All this is going on while a buffoon of a new teacher tries to prove his worth only to get his in the end. The Chamber of Secrets is a treasured gem that I think really helps Harry and Ron cherish their friendship with Hermione. The last half of this film is really just Harry and Ron trying to figure out what's been petrifying people without knowing where to look. Before we really break down how much they need Hermione, let's talk about Parseltongue. I think the Parseltongue concept in the books and movies was actually really unique. Giving an ability like this that's got stigma in the wizarding world to a guy who has lived their life sheltered from all things magical was genius. Pair that with the fact that he had no idea about it other than his little conversation with the python at the zoo, and it makes for a great start to a storyline that maybe Harry survived because he's evil. Now, of course, that's a stretch, but it also doesn't stop others from thinking that due to the nature and the legacy Parseltongue has. 
While we saw Harry beg the sorting hat not to sort him in Slytherin in the first movie, we're seeing that internal struggle come forward with this trait, as the founder of Slytherin House was also a parcel tongue. And this causes Harry to second-guess his whole self, and it doesn't help that Ron pretty much says that you're evil if you're in Slytherin. Now this movie was marketed pretty heavily in... Now this movie was marketed pretty heavily as it was the sequel to the highest grossing film in 2001. I don't know about you guys, but they released the trailer for this movie and they showed that moment when Ron and Harry were flying in the car going to Hogwarts and Harry almost fell out. Ever since I saw that, it's been a core memory to me with this movie. So watching it again really gave me all the feels. This sequel, though, is a little bit darker than its predecessor. We're kicked off with the creature, a house elf, that tries everything imaginable to keep Harry from Hogwarts, a weird encounter with Draco and his father, and a run-in with a deadly tree. And that's only the beginning of the dark tones in this movie. With a looming threat leaving a fear that Hogwarts will close, it's only surface level to the unfortunate events set to happen. This whole movie is a little bit darker in its production as well, almost like the first movie painted the wonders of the magical world, while the second movie helps show the other side of the coin. The silver lining to this dark movie is Harry's time with the Weasley family, which kicks off almost a summer tradition for Harry in the future. While Harry lives with bars on his windows, he's rescued by Ron and his brothers and taken to a place where magic is used to help live. Seeing the beauty and wonder of the Weasley home, it's the last bit of peace Harry will see for what I see as the foreseeable future. Now let's move on to the diary and the main plot. Now, for those who aren't knowledgeable about Harry Potter lore in any capacity, might want to close their ears for a little bit. So the diary that just so happened to be given to Ginny Weasley housed a young Lord Voldemort. Now, we know from our knowledge that this is the first Horcrux that Harry comes across, but doesn't know it yet. And just in general, Lucius gave Ginny that diary in hopes to kill her. This isn't the most disturbing thing about Lucius, and we'll get to that towards the end. But with this diary, Ginny has been writing in and disclosing her feelings, and when Harry gets a hold of it, he's transported into a memory of Hagrid being framed. My main question, and something that I encourage you to think about, is did Ginny ever get transported anywhere in Tom Riddle slash Voldemort's mind? It's some food for thought. So this diary is making Ginny write on the walls about the Chamber of Secrets, which piques the Trigo's interests. While a basilisk is going around being controlled by this weaker version of Voldemort until Harry finds the Chamber of Secrets and defeats the basilisk and Voldemort, but gets gravely injured in the process. There wasn't a lot of things in this movie that happened that didn't ultimately loop back to the plot, and while I liked that part of the movie, I also found myself a bit overwhelmed rewatching it because I felt there was nothing I could leave out and trying to find a way to condense the film plot was difficult overall. And so I think this movie learned from its previous release, but almost in a bad way. There's not much else to mention in this review, as The Chamber of Secrets is really a C-tier Harry Potter movie. And I do want to mention that overall, the premise of this movie is actually pretty top tier. Just because I struggled to give you all the information due to overload doesn't mean that it didn't do a good job of encompassing all that information it wanted to give from the book into movie format. So I am sorry if in my review it didn't really do it justice, but you can kind of blame the film for that. Now I want to do some honorable mentions uh, before I move on to the ratings. So 
In the film, McGonagall asks Ron to transfigure his rat into a goblet, knowing full well that his wand is busted, only to lecture him that he needs to get it fixed. And I don't know if that's boss energy or petty energy, but I think we just need to talk about it. Next, Snape is on his revenge ship and is trying to say that Ron and Harry should be expelled for their flying car incident. And honestly, where is he wrong? Prove him wrong. Next, Harry witnessed that phoenix burn up and actually legitimately thought that he killed the bird due to everything that people were saying about him, including his friends, about how he had evil inside him. Next, Lucius tries to kill, and I'm not even joking, kill Harry for using a sock to manipulate Lucius into giving Dobby freedom, and that's just not it, sis. If you go back and watch that very end moment, you'll see that he starts to say Avada, and I'm like, that's the killing curse. And last, but my very favorite, is every Gilderoy Lockhart moment where the professors look at him like an idiot, as well as Snape and McGonagall egging him on to go and find the Chamber of Secrets to rescue Ginny. The fact that they knew, and McGonagall was so great, she goes, your skills however legendary it's like come on they know those little moments really made the movie have those light moments during all the dark events that took place now on to the reviews for the acting and characters i definitely want to rate it higher than the sorcerer's stone because you could definitely see that there were improvements on the acting front even with the looks of the characters it was just one year from the release of Sorcerers to Chambers, which kind of made sense for time progression, but you could see that they definitely looked more grown up. We also were introduced to more characters in a really good way. The interaction with Lucius Malfoy and the new Slytherin Quidditch team were really well done. This is also the start of a new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher every year, and the greatest buffoon just happened to be picked. It was really great. 8 out of 10. So for the overall story, I wanted to give it a low score, but I don't think that I could because the story is actually good. So I'm just going to give it an 8 as well. I did really enjoy the fact that we get to meet another version of Voldemort, and I did enjoy Dobby trying to get Harry to stay away because he knew that something was up due to who he worked for. The only downside to the story was just the amount of information to follow. We had Dobby trying to keep Harry away, which didn't work, which caused them to fly the car, which caused them to get detention, which caused Harry to hear voices, which related to the petrification attacks and blood writing, which led to dueling training, which led to parcel tongue discovery, which led to more attacks, which led to polyjuice potion, which led to finding the diary, which made Harry see it was Hagrid, but not before Hermione was attacked and confronting Hagrid, which led them to follow the spiders and finding out he was framed, which led them to find the paper from Hermione, which explained what it was that was attacking, which led them to the Chamber of Secrets, which led to the final fight. It's just a lot. There's a lot, and this movie is almost three hours long. So, I don't know. It's eight out of ten, but whew. The only thing I will say is, even though it was pretty overwhelming, it just wasn't difficult to follow. And I feel like that's, like, more impressive than anything else for this movie. Alright, next is the book-to-movie comparison. I'm giving that a 10 out of 10. With both the first and the second book, there wasn't much to leave out, and I think that this movie did a better job than the first one, bringing to life every piece of information at a slightly unsettling cost. But there was nothing missing. 
overall, the Chamber of Secrets was a 9 out of 10 for me. I'm not sure if any of you listening can relate, but the first and second movies are iconic and also the most played on TV. I always found myself watching Chamber of Secrets on TV growing up once it came out and felt that it was hyped up as the sequel to the best grossing movie. So this movie was almost imprinted in my brain by the time I got to rewatch it again, and seeing it again really didn't change my mind. Alright, now time to talk about my favorite movie from this whole series. This was also my favorite book, mind you, and I'll go into why shortly, but here is Prisoner of Azkaban. Prisoner of Azkaban is the third movie in the IP and was directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Apologies if I say that wrong. It released almost two years after Chamber of Secrets, and I think there's some main reasons why. In a sad turn of events, the actor that played Albus Dumbledore, Richard Harrison, passed away in October 2002, just one month before the release of Chamber of Secrets. Of course, this would change the game for Harry Potter moving forward. Prisoner of Azkaban was the shortest of the Harry Potter movies, clocking in at just slightly over two hours. And POA stays on trend with its comrades by being the second highest grossing film of 2004 behind Shrek 2. I'm actually surprised at the success of this movie in the first year, and I think it really just got off with its IP clout, but I feel that this movie is not as beloved by others as it is with me. Out of the whole franchise, Prisoner of Azkaban actually ranks the lowest in terms of box office. Will rewatching prove that point? Probably not. I'm just gonna, like, spoiler alert, it didn't. The Prisoner of Azkaban can be summed up pretty easily. This movie is all about Harry just going through life as a teenage wizard. He blows up his aunt like a balloon and leaves his house because he can't deal with his hormones and emotions. He faints due to unmanaged trauma from his early baby years triggered by Dementors looking for a prisoner. He tries to sneak into Hogsmeade not caring that he's breaking rules because he has FOMO, fear of missing out, and finds out that there was someone responsible for the death of his parents. All the while having to deal with learning to fight Dementors, rival Quidditch teams, and a sort of weird and kooky divination teacher. That doesn't even begin to mention the Beasts in Care of Magical Creatures class that he has to work with now, more dangerous yet beautiful like the hippogriff Buckbeak. And that's just Harry. Hermione is battling her own struggles by trying to learn everything that she can, as much as she can, for no care for her well-being. And on top of that, she's realizing that she's also a teenage girl and a certain red-headed boy she hangs out with is starting to feel safe to be with. These teens spend time out of class and out of their robes in this film, but safely because there's a prisoner on the loose. Don't worry though, it turns out he's not the traitor Harry believes him to be, and with the help of his werewolf professor, a time-turner, and a little self-confidence, Harry helps the last living connection to his blood family escape with Buckbeak, and that's the end of the movie. Oh, and he gets a new broom. The end. And definitely went silly with that description, because to me, this movie is a bit silly. Prisoner of Azkaban is a lighter version of Harry Potter, and it encompasses just what it means to be a growing teenager with the ability to do magic. The first instance we get of that is when Harry blows up his aunt. Granted, it might have been deserved. The whole time, he was trying to appease his muggle aunt and uncle so that they would sign his permission slip while listening to his visiting aunt go on and on about how Harry is a screw-up due to his mom. If I was told that, I probably would get pissy too. 
Harry then continues to ride the wave of emotions by leaving his house, hitching a ride on a bus, and spending the rest of the summer in London. The rest of this movie is casual, except for the serious black storyline, which is the main plot of the movie. I rather enjoyed this villain and a break from Voldemort because if I was Harry, I would just be really stressed out to even go to Hogwarts if I knew that every time I was going to go to school, I would have an encounter with the main person trying to kill me. It was refreshing to see the lighter side of the world where he's focusing on classes and trying to go on field trips but has to sneak in. It's so human and normal, and I think when you think about wizards and the wizarding world, your mind goes to all the things they can do as wizards, but sometimes can forget that they're just kids growing up. And if I had to live with crap people who didn't care about my well-being and I found out that my godfather could care for me, I would absolutely jump at the opportunity to live with them. Aside from that, though, Harry is just making his way through life as a wizard. It's the most comfortable and confident Harry we've seen in the series to date, and even more so, it's the most casual we've seen the entire trio. Now, when people ask why I was such a fan of this iteration of the series, I always say it's because it was the most real and normal part. There weren't any crazy moments that really put Harry's life at risk except for the Dementors. And the Dementors were actually a welcomed point in the storyline as well. We knew from one passing comment how Azkaban was not the place to go, and now we find out that Dementors guard that prison and suck the life out of everything. And while the Dementors are supposed to just be chilling outside, they find their way into most places Harry is, like the train and his Quidditch matches. Although these Dementors are nothing to be messed with, it doesn't stop the schoolyard bullying from the alter ego trio. That's what I'm calling Draco, Crab, and Goyle. Because apparently, having your mom die in front of you and just trying to survive your first two years in magic school aren't enough to warrant you fainting at the Dementor's soul-sucking presence. Aside from those serious bits, we get some more magical fun like time rewinding, a map that shows everyone in Hogwarts, and a little cat and mouse play that ends up making a cat 400 IQ. These little moments in Prisoner of Azkaban set it apart from the whole series. While there's nothing like major fight scenes and lots of magic, you should never underestimate the power of just relatability. Now on to the ratings. For the acting and characters, I am going to rate that a 7 out of 10. The introduction to Sirius Black was welcomed for Harry's character development, and Remus Lupin and all his werewolfness was the perfect teacher for the school. Considering who they end up getting for the rest of the years, I'd take the werewolf. I think like the second movie, this movie franchise continues to grow and learn with its audience, and we see that in the actors. Hermione has calmed down on the facial expressions while she talks, and everything is a bit more fluid. You can tell that in just the three years that they've been doing this series, they've learned a lot. I also know I mentioned it already, but I want to say that my stance on the casual closings in this film is I love it. I think they pushed the robes and the other wizarding garb in the first two movies to establish the world, but with the ability to go to Hogsmeade and not have to look like a robe student, it was a really nice change of pace. For the overall story, I'm going to go ahead and rate this an 8 out of 10. I think the serious black storyline was great, but the Dementors part felt like a bit much. Having the mass amount of them attack Sirius to the point of almost soul-sucking darkness was just not as realistic to me, but I guess because the Dementors are everywhere, it's not so out of pocket. I also liked learning about Annie Magus and the plot twist that Ron's brat was one. 
I think it was unique to make the family pet a man who sold out Harry's parents. Overall, the story was great, and again, because I can't say it enough, the whole casual vibe was really just refreshing. And lastly, the book versus movie comparison. For book to movie, I would say that this is the first one that starts to really just shave down a lot of things not needed in the film from the book. I will say that with that in mind, they did still keep a majority and didn't massacre it like a few others. For that, I'm going to go ahead and rate this book to movie a 7 out of 10. While they did shave stuff down, it wasn't substance to the plot. Overall, with those ratings, Prisoner of Azkaban gets a 7 out of 10 for me, which doesn't change the way I feel about it. I think there's beauty in the silly and ridiculousness that this movie has. Alright, we've reached the last one, Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire is the fourth story in the series and was directed by Mike Newell and stands at a whopping two and a half hours. Following its brethren, Goblet of Fire was the second highest grossing film in 2005 behind Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. Interestingly enough, Goblet of Fire did not do a terrible job in the box office sales overall as the movie came in at sixth out of the eight movies in front of Chamber of Secrets and heartbreakingly Prisoner of Azkaban. Admittedly though, I think out of the four we reviewed today, this one received a lot of backlash, so let's break it down. Goblet of Fire kicks off the darker turn Harry Potter takes. While it starts off happy enough with Harry, Hermione, and the Weasleys going to the Quidditch World Cup, the celebration is short-lived when the event is attacked by dark wizards. Uneasy, the trio heads to Hogwarts, where an exciting announcement is made. They are hosting the Triwizard Tournament, where multiple wizarding schools will compete for the Triwizard Cup. Unexpectedly, a fourth, not of age but completely necessary to the plot, name is drawn from the Goblet of Fire, making it a Tetra-Wizard Tournament. This alerts a lot of people, especially Dumbledore. However, the rules are set, and since the cup chose Harry, he has to compete. The whole competition is made up of three tasks that will push each competitor to their magical limits. Harry gets help on the first tasks from Hagrid, and after he succeeds, that's when Ron decides to pull the stick out of his ass and roots for Harry to win. The second task, he has help from another competitor and the king, Neville Longbottom, who's made a friend with the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Mad-Eye Moody. Harry narrowly and heroically competes the second task, and then it's on to the third and final task. The third task consists of a maze where the cup sits at the end. After dealing with all the maze holds, Harry comes to the center with his competitor, Cedric Diggory, and the power of friendship helps them both go for the cup, but suddenly they're transported to a graveyard where Harry comes face to face with fear itself. Cedric is killed on the spot and Harry is trapped in a headstone left to witness the rebirth of the most evil dark wizard of all, Voldemort. A terrifying yet intriguing duel occurs where Harry gets some encouraging words from friends and family. This gives him the break he needs to grab the cup and Cedric to go back to Hogwarts and get his sorrowful victory. With this upsetting news that Voldemort is back, what does this mean for the wizarding world? But Harry's unsettling night doesn't end there. While the chaos erupts from Cedric's death, Harry is taken away by Moody, and through Moody's own arrogance, 
he is found out to not be the real Mad-Eye Moody, but actually a Death Eater who set up Harry to help Voldemort rise again. Luckily, the real Moody is found, and the events that happened will be a heavy weight in the wizarding world, as there is much darker times ahead for Harry and his friends. Whew, now this movie, this movie was a major disappointment. Now don't get me wrong, this movie is decent. I just think that they rushed through everything. Considering that this book in the franchise had over 300 more pages than its predecessors, but was just as long movie-wise, it's probably its biggest failure. Many points in the movie were made without build-up or lead time, so were kind of just put into these parts of the story right after the other, without much know-how. We're thrown into this trek into the World Cup, then we have a little discussion about the events after the Cup with the Death Eaters on the train, and then we're shown flying horses and a ship coming in with no knowledge until Dumbledore talks with everyone about the tournament. Essentially, you could say that this movie has two plots in it, but it isn't really sure which way to go. So let's dive into the tournament side first. This storyline was great, and I do believe there's a minor tie-in to the Death Eater slash Darkmark story with someone putting Harry's name into the goblet and the Durmstrang headmaster being a former Death Eater. Overall, though, the main plot of this story is centered around the tournament and how Harry is going to do it. I think one of the most memed and biggest injustices they ever did to this movie was the scene after Harry's name came out of the goblet. I can confirm that this is what the book says. Professor Dumbledore was now looking down at Harry, who looked right back at him, trying to discern the expression of the eyes behind the half-moon spectacles. Did you put your name into the Goblet of Fire, Harry? He asked calmly. Not throw him up against a wall and yell and interrogate him like they did in the movie. At the time, it wasn't something that I picked apart, but reading it and then having it be memed, it kind of just makes it funnier and also more aggravating, because in the whole series, there's never been a moment or time where Dumbledore has ever been anything less than calm and collected. I feel like in general, this movie did a really big disservice to his character. Now besides that, the rest of the tournament footage was really well done. I think it encompassed just how Harry would act with all these people thinking that he put his name in or the people rooting against him or even the simple fact that he just wanted to enjoy it with everyone and not have a year where he was in danger of being killed. So it's really likely that he would have actually procrastinated these tasks like times a thousand. I also want to point out that the amount of cheating that happened in this tournament, which honestly just proves that each school wanted their champion to win. One of my other issues with the tournament story arc was the fact that they didn't put obstacles into the maze like they had in the book. They pretty much just showed the maze changing or swallowing up champions instead of genuine obstacles like the Sphinx that was there. While I can understand that they most likely did this to showcase Crumb being controlled, I really thought that the third task lacked substance. Now, of course, at the end of the maze storyline kicks off the second and final part to the Death Eater slash Darkmark storyline, and it comes with some pain. We have our first full death scene with nothing to kind of ease you into it, on top of this terrifying potion being made where we're unsure what it's being used for. Harry being trapped in place only to witness the rebirth aids in the anxiety that this whole scene has. 
Even after the events of the wand duel and with Harry back at Hogwarts, there's still just so much heaviness. The way the movie laid it out was pretty splendid, and while there are a lot of moments from the book that would have given this story more depth, it wasn't so unwatchable. Depth. I think that's really what is missing. So often with book-to-movie adaptations, you kind of have an understanding that there are things that maybe you'll have to leave out for either inability to recreate or produce it for time purposes, but I think in this case, it really put the movie in a bad spot. Now, before I continue to rant on about my feelings, let's just go ahead and get to the ratings. For the acting and characters, I'm giving this movie a 5 out of 10. I was very unhappy with the way they portrayed Dumbledore and even Fleur Delacour, the part Vila champion. The movie didn't explain at all why Fleur and her classmates were alluring other than them being women and maybe Fleur being blonde. I also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember Crouch Jr. having a little tick tell in the book like he does in the movie. Though I'm sure they put that in so when he's needing to drink more polyjuice potion to be moody, his little tells would show. They also have Crouch Jr.'s voice not be his own when using the potion, which is different than the Chamber of Secrets in Deathly Hollows. It's something that makes more sense for the movie, but not in the sense of the whole film world. Other than that, the rest of the characters are actually really well done, and like the previous three, practice makes perfect and the acting is getting better. I also want to say that Ron was kind of a little bitch in this movie. First he started getting a complex about Harry having money, and then he got all pissy thinking that Harry put his name in the goblet for glory, even though it's completely uncharacteristic for Harry to do that, and then he gets all wishy-washy and now is Harry's friend again, and then he gets jealous with Hermione because she went to the ball with Crumb. Legitimately, Ron just needed to be smacked in the head in this movie. For the overall story, I'm giving that a 6 out of 10. Like I stated above, they left a lot of things out in the story, and it really ended up putting this movie at a disadvantage for the watchers. I think in reality, the tournament was supposed to be the lightheartedness part of the story, but it takes up a lot of the runtime when I think the movie wanted us to focus on the other looming threat. One redemption to the story was the Yule Ball in Hermione's girl boss moment calling out Ron. In general, I kind of really liked the Yule Ball moment because it actually felt like a real school event. Alright, and lastly for ratings, the book-to-movie adaptation. And now you know that I'm going to rate this badly. 2 out of 10. Complete 2 out of 10. There were so many moments in the book that weren't in the movie, and maybe it was for a good reason, but some of what was left out I think was kind of crucial to some of the plots. Like, did you know that Barty Crouch is turned into a bone and buried by his own son? Or that Dobby is actually now working at Hogwarts? Or that there's lots more in the maze that was shown? Did you know that there was at least a month of classes before the other schools came for the tournament? All that information would have been really cool to see, but the movie knew how much information was in the 700 plus page book and that they couldn't fit everything. So for this rating, I feel it's deserved, but I'm also understanding that they couldn't do everything. With those ratings on the table, overall that gives Goblet of Fire a 4 out of 10. Although I don't think that it was the worst offender of leaving out details of the franchise, it cuts corners that were unnecessary. Also just had a lot of teenage angst. 
The emotions for this movie were just running rampant, and while emotion is good to convey scenes, I felt like it was just a little too much in some ways. Oh, goodness. That was a lot. Now, I very much enjoyed going through all these movies again, and I also really enjoyed looking up all the stats for the box office info. As a Potterhead, I never concerned myself with the details of how well the franchise did before because I alone was just enjoying it. I often found myself getting lost in the research and even getting up multiple times uh, while I was writing this to check my worn out copies in the book and flip through. I think my favorite thing about this podcast, even with as time consuming as the script was and how the next episodes will be, is that I'm continuing to learn and grow my knowledge. At 31, there's always times where self-doubt comes in and you start to wonder if you're slipping mentally because you can't do quick maths anymore. So having something like this podcast to deep dive with and keep my brain trained is rewarding. Now, I hope you guys enjoyed this first episode of March Magic Madness. Tune in next week for Harry Potter Rewatch years 5 through 8. If you liked these deep dives and want more, don't forget to follow the podcast because you'll get notified when new episodes drop. Also, don't forget to rate the podcast. I'm always looking to better the content, and it's just myself here, so if you guys don't like anything, just let me know. Because if you don't let me know, nothing's going to change. You can put any feedback or topic suggestions on my website at julesjustvibes.com, and I just want to do a quick shout out to the person fart at fart at fartfart.com for asking me to review fart. It was a good chuckle. If you want any offline updates about the podcast, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at jjvpod. And that's it for me this week. Happy binging, and I'll see you guys on the next one. Bye-bye.